Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Catherine Ballantyne, a partner in the Madrix litigation and insolvency team. Businesses rely on Catherine as a dispute specialist, guiding them through complex litigation. This trusting relationship developed with her clients sees Catherine as an in-demand lawyer who understands the commercial realities of being involved in a dispute. Working across a number of industries, Catherine specialises in business disputes, including defamation, contractual disputes and trust disputes. She is a versatile litigator adept at handling any challenge and is well respected for her ability to work across a number of areas and industries. Catherine works closely with not-for-profits in assisting them run a successful enterprise. She also advises on personal and corporate insolvency, including complex restructuring matters. Catherine has been interviewed as a legal expert multiple times on ABC Radio National and has been published by publications such as Smart Company, Industry Insider Magazine, Association of Corporate Counsel and Australia Property Journal. In our discussion today, we speak about the importance of providing or seeking evidence to support assertions being made in the negotiation, building a strategy that impacts the other side's batner, the importance of getting to know the players in the negotiations, the timing of when to mediate, switching players during the mediation, the importance of mentoring and training in developing negotiation skills, the importance of not being intimidated by the other side, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. So welcome to Negotiation in Real Life, Catherine. It's really a pleasure to have you on the, on the show today. Thank you. Um, Catherine, now you are a specialist litigator and I know you've got lots of experience working around disputes and um, not only of being in court, but also of commercial settlements and negotiations, both directly and also through the mediation process. And we're going to have a look at that in more detail in a second. But before we do, it'd be great for you to just give a brief overview of who you are and what you do. Uh, Thanks, Nicole. Um, I am a partner at Madgewick's Lawyers. I'm in the the disputes and insolvency team, which basically means we deal with um, a whole heap of business disputes, whether it's between shareholders, whether it's between customers and suppliers, whether it's between tenants and landlords. The whole raft of business disputes is is what we do. And I've been in in, um, the legal world for almost 20 years now. So I think I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly and the good, the bad and the ugly negotiation tactics, mediations and um, settlement offers. 
Fantastic. And yeah, there is plenty of the bad and the ugly in the insolvency world. I know from my own experience as an insolvency practitioner, we've obviously had a bit of a chat about things before and some of the challenges that you come up with in negotiations in some of these insolvency disputes in particular, but I know you do general commercial disputes as well. And one of the things that we talked about was, you know, sometimes when other parties are trying to negotiate, it can be quite difficult to work out how much to trust them or or what to do when they're making certain claims but aren't providing any support to back that up. So I'm wondering if you've got something you'd want to say about that. Oh, absolutely. Look, this is a common problem where usually once you've got into litigation, if you're having, say, a mediation as part of the litigation process, usually, especially if it's between two commercial parties, usually there's been a break in trust. So mm. neither party trusts each other. Um, and, and you get to the point where you get to mediation, and I've had this many times, one time in particular stands out, but I've had it many times, where one party will come to the mediation and say, I'm impecunious, so I don't have any money to pay to pay anything, so we may as well walk away now. Now, the one um, situation I had in mind is I had counsel briefed on my client there. Now, the other side's solicitors and counsel were there as well, and they made this claim. So immediately my reaction was, well, you know, we've obviously done property searches. We see that your client's got properties, and, yes, there are mortgages on it. We'd like to see the mortgage statements. We'd like your client to swear a a statutory declaration just of their assets and liabilities because you're asking us to settle for for a tiny fraction of the claim there's been a complete breakdown in, in trust mm-hmm. and um, you're saying that we should just believe you. Now, um, my counsel was very, very reluctant to put that position, I think because there was what we would now call a King's Council on the other side, um, previously Queen's Council, yes. you see. Yes, <laughs> We're all getting used to this. It's um, a new so change, was, isn't it? That's right. So I think my counsel is very concerned about looking unreasonable in front of them. I was not concerned in any way about looking unreasonable in front of the other side. I was there to do the best thing by my clients. I'm so surprised that someone would think that as being unreasonable. That's right. It was quite amazing. So they said they didn't want to put that. So I said, that's fine. You stay here. I will go up and speak to the other side. Now, sometimes counsel won't speak to a solicitor. So I said, if that's the case, you may need to come with me, but I'll do Mm. the talking. Or I'll talk to the mediator and get them to to put put this to them. And I explained it, you know, very calmly and rationally that it's not that we're not trusting what the lawyers say, but they have to understand in all these types of disputes, there's always a mistrust between the client. And if they can help us by getting over this hurdle, then we can help them by seeing if there is a commercial outcome that can be achieved. That's Um, so important, isn't it? And particularly where it is, as you said, that claim of, well, sue us, we've got no money to pay because that is said by so many people. So often. And, you know, it's very rare for them to offer up that support. Well, that's right. And if they don't have that support, and I say this to my clients as well, I say, look, if you're going to say to them, we have nothing, they're going to say to me, "Well, well, prove it. If you prove it, then we'll think about a much, you know, taking a fraction of the claim because commercially it doesn't make sense 
Correct. going through the process, getting an order and then winding up the company or bankrupting the individual. Um, but, you know, without that proof, how can the, the parties generally have a complete mistrust of each other because they are in litigation. If they could work it out and they trusted each other, they wouldn't be in this situation. Totally. So, it's really interesting that you've brought that up because that was one of the things, you know, I started my mediations doing magistrates court disputes Yes. And it was raised, I reckon probably more than half of the time, one of the parties would say, sue me, I don't have anything. And it became sort of fairly common for a discussion to be had about somebody actually filling out the statement of assets and liabilities that sits, I think it's within the Bankruptcy Act or That's it's right. within the Magistrate's Court rules. Yes. Um, and we'd actually get them to do that. And that was the way that, um, which is is exactly the sort of process that you're describing there. It's so important. And, and actually being on the front foot and saying, well, if this is the argument we're going to raise that we don't have the money, actually being on the front foot and putting that forward rather than just assuming the trust will be there um, is something That's to think right. about, isn't and it? And it all, all comes down, I think, in, in all mediations, it's so important to prepare and that's one of the preparations if you're claiming money from someone, you're, of course, going to do all the types of searches to see what assets are there. Yeah. And if someone is claiming money from you, you need to prepare, be prepared they've done that. And if they see you've got a property with a mortgage, they're going to want to know how much the mortgage is, how much equity is in the property, so that if they bankrupt you or wind up your company and the property is sold, how much will be there in the end? So Absolutely. And I think what goes from that further, um, Catherine, is if you put that information about the financial position early in the negotiations or early in the legal proceedings, you're actually going to be getting in before they've spent a whole lot of money because one of the things that I've seen in some of the mediations is they've got huge way down the path of litigation and the, this is sort of like the last resort mediation at which they bring up the, oh, by the way, I've got no money. Yes. And now the other person is less likely to resolve things because they're so annoyed that they've spent all this money chasing someone who didn't have funds. Well, that's right. The timing of mediation is so essential and it's really a strategic matter. And I know it's it's often to do with uh, when the court sets it, but the, the parties have a say in when the mm. mediation is going to be. And if you mediate before you, you go and spend the money to litigation and there's there's almost a tipping point and it's a, it really, it's horses for courses. It really depends on the parties involved. And um, the mediator can always um, help with this once they get to know the, get to know the parties. But essentially, um, you know, sometimes some parties need to have a bit of pain before they're willing mm. to settle in the form of, you know, legal fees. But as you say, if they go too far down the path and they've spent too much legal fees, too many legal fees, and they're too invested in the process financially as well as emotionally, they're a lot less um, likely to settle. So the timing of the mediation is a really strategic matter. Um, totally. I, I had one which was a, an insolvency one, an unfair preference, and my client was one of 70 unfair preferences being chased by the liquidators. So we essentially waited and waited, and um, we asked basically for our mediation to be near the end of all the mediations, which was hugely um, determinative of the settlement we got because the mediator, uh, sorry, the liquidator was obviously you know, very enthusiastic at the start. 
by the time they got to us, they'd settled, I think, 67 out of 70. They had got their money. They'd paid their fees. Yeah. They've got the money for the creditors. They're now wanting to wind up and move on to other things. They were not enthusiastic about our one. They just, they did not want to run. They'd settled almost all the rest of them. So they were not keen to run, you know, out of 71 claims. Yeah. So they settled for significantly less than had our mediation been one of the first mediations. Yes. And that was a deliberate strategy on our behalf. So the timing, you know, the timing of the mediation as well as what you do in the mediation is a really strategic thing you need to think about. Yeah, and that's such a good example, Catherine, because what you've done there is, you know, if I bring it back to negotiation theory, what you've done is you've put them in a position where their BATNA or their best alternative to negotiating a settlement is far worse because the delay of actually having to go to proceedings, the actual ongoing costs of the administration while that was happening really put them in a worse position in terms of trying to get the maximum value. So really strategic, Um and makes a lot of sense. I guess the problem is what happens when everyone cottons onto this strategy yeah. and they all want to go last. That's And that's the issue. Look, we were quite fortunate that um, most of the others didn't. Mm. Um, so we, we could sort of keep ours till near the end. Um, and, and by that stage, the liquidators had, had got what they wanted out of yeah. the process. But, but, you know, it's not always entirely up to you you know, no. there's, there's two parties and there's the court as well. So, but it, it, this one, you know, happened to work out for us and we put that strategy in place deliberately yeah. and it worked out. So. Yeah, and look, I think it's really, it's the other thing that comes up from that is really understanding the interests of the parties because the other thing by having that delay there is, as you said, by the time they got to your claim, the liquidator's fees have been covered. They've already got a reasonable response, uh, reasonable dividend to creditors and probably the impact of this settlement might be one or two cents in the dollar for creditors. Exactly. Um, so their interest in settling is quite different, whereas at the beginning, you know, we, regardless of professionality of a liquidator, the first a major concern is going to be we need to at least make sure we get paid. Yes. And until, right. that, until that has been resolved, they're going to be much tougher. Yes. And as you said, it's this sort of declining sort of rate of concern about what makes commercial sense. Well, that's right. And I um, that's why, you know, in a liquidation, I'm usually better placed than the client to, to sort of explain because we act for liquidators and we act against liquidators to explain what's in the liquidator's mind. In a commercial dispute where um, there's two parties that I don't know, when I first meet my client, I, I, I ask them about all the facts, of course, and all the, the, yep. the legal issues and all the documents, but I also ask them about the background, the other side, what's motivating them, what's motivating the client, what they're wanting to achieve out of the process, where they're wanting to get to. And I feel that in a mediation, a good mediator like yourself does that as well. They, they're trying to get beyond just the legal niceties what is motivating each party and what? Yeah. where is each party wanting to get to and what are they wanting out of this? And often what is motivating and where they want to get to often has nothing to do with the legal niceties. It's often a completely either commercial or personal issue in the background rumbling along. And, and, and we, as lawyers and as a mediator, we need to get to the, the bottom of that. 
absolutely right. And and this is the challenge. And I think going through and actually understanding who that other party is, where mm. they're coming from, because, you know, I've had situations and you've probably seen this too, where the, the person on the other side is really just so heated in the way they're approaching things. And for them, it's actually much more about the emotion. They might be quite aggressive and hostile. Yes. And the result for the person on, you know, the other side might be very unfair they may have the best legal case in the world, yes. but you can know that it, it's going to be a terribly expensive legal case to run because of the attitude of that person and because they will take every small point. And so to actually explain that and say, well, you've got to take that factor into account in re- mm. working out what the settlement is, because if you're against a different person, maybe the legal cost would be a lot less and the stress would be a lot less. Well, that's right what you'd accept in that against that negotiation is very different to what you might accept in the similar dispute with a different person. And the effect on your stress level, what the, the litigation, what are you taking you away from your main business or your yeah. main employment? These are factors that have to be taken into account, what it's doing to you and your family. Often, even if families aren't directly involved, they're indirectly affected. Um, it's huge. I find um, in some mediations, Either my client or the other client can't get into a mind frame of settlement until they've made a statement that the other side has heard directly. Yes. To say, this is what you've done and this is how it's affected me. And rarely is it a financial, like it is a financial effect often, but often it's the stress, the family ties, the friendship that that person may have had. This is how you've affected me and I need you to hear that before I can even consider moving on and so we do like to give the opportunity to that and I know and the mediation process and mediators are are very good at facilitating that and identifying it sometimes it's been identified up front so it can be in the joint session but mediators are incredibly good at um, identifying where you know sometimes it's appropriate for the mediator and the, the two parties at a certain point in time to speak by themselves without lawyers. So that can be said in a non-confrontational way without an audience so that people's pride isn't hurt or they're not on show. Um, And and that's where a a mediator can really help facilitate that. Yeah, absolutely, isn't it? And, you know, it, it comes down as well to that fact that, you know, when we're in dispute with someone, Sometimes we just don't listen to what they say. You know, when they start talking, our brain is automatically explaining why everything that comes out of their mouth is rubbish. And yet, and so even if the person gets their chance to say it, they're not actually being heard. But once it's said and repeated back in a different way by the mediator, um, the person can actually listen to that. And so sometimes what I found certainly is things that somebody's been saying for months the, the other person only hears at the mediation goes, oh, and you can almost sometimes see that penny drop going, that's the problem. I agree. So, and I think having an independent person, such as a mediator, they're not on either person's side, so to speak. They're not advocating for either side. To hear them sort of set it out in a calm, rational, unemotive way is, is incredibly helpful. And I and I think a lot of um, clients don't appreciate that till they go through the process. Mm. 
they don't necessarily understand how helpful that is. Well, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, going back, you mentioned about the timing of mediation earlier. And as you probably are aware, I'm a big advocate of what I term early intervention mediation, Mm. where you actually mediate these disputes prior to litigation, which doesn't happen a lot in commercial disputes. Sometimes it will because the parties have a nice dispute resolution clause that requires it. Um, But I'm interested in your experience of Um, you know, how often you would think about mediating at an early stage rather than just relying on the parties and the the lawyers to do the negotiations themselves? Yeah, look, I think it is is a great idea. It it really is horses for courses. As I said, some parties, especially if they've been through the litigation process before, I think then it's actually very worthwhile because they understand how expensive and how stressful it is, despite the fact, of course, we always warn them. Yeah. Until you've been through the process, a lot of people struggle to really understand the impact it's going to have on their their life and their business and and their financial and the financial side of things. Um, I think in those cases, it's incredibly good because they do understand it. In some other cases where people haven't been through the legal process before, they really need, I, I think it's, it's it's sometimes not worthwhile because they really need to feel a little bit of legal costs and go, wow, this is costing a lot. Wow, my lawyers are telling me I'm, I'm not 100% going to win because everyone yeah. goes in here, oh, I'm 100%, my case is fabulous. Oh, there are risks. Sometimes it, it, re- it really is a judgment call and that just comes with experience um in an ideal world world every case would be mediated before litigation commenced because I think even if you don't settle you at least understand where the other party's coming from you understand what they're going to say you can all you can assess better the strengths and weaknesses of both cases and you can um understand their potential and appetite for settlement so in an ideal world it would happen in every single case but I think sometimes the parties aren't ready for it ahead of time and it's not worthwhile whereas yeah uh, oftentimes it is yeah look I couldn't agree with you more and you know it's quite fascinating because um, you know there are some areas where you do have to mediate before you can go through to litigation so if you're in the retail leases space for example Um, yes. That must be. And interesting, interestingly, the UK is now talking about making pre-litigation mediation mandatory in certain of its lower jurisdiction courts. So mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see if that develops here over time as well. Yes. So, Catherine, from a negotiation perspective, obviously you are negotiating all the time and I love the commercial um, sensitivity you bring to the negotiations rather than just the legal aspects. What's been the biggest thing that has helped you develop your legal skills through your career? I, I really think it's watching others and learning and, and emulating those who are excellent at it. I've been very lucky at Magic's, um going through the ranks. I've had some incredibly good role models and incredibly talented Um, negotiators and incredibly strategic and and having the ability where we've had a long career at Madgewicks and we were always taught very early on to look at the commercial side of things not just the black and white legal side of things and um, how to strategically think about the case not just go through the process 
and I, I genuinely think there's there's no replacement for for sitting in with people, which is what we do with our, our people now coming through the ranks. We make sure that they're sitting in and watching all of us go through the process. I think that's hugely important. I also um, think, Nicole, you can, you've come into our firm and, and done a negotiation seminar. And can I say that's that has been incredibly helpful and I had wonderful feedback from so many of our lawyers because I think that's helpful too. Some formal training to, to complement the hands-on training and watching your mentors is, is, is fabulous and that's, and that's what we aim for. Yeah, and thank you for that. It's great to hear that the feedback was good and I think you're right. It's, it's having that combination. You can't learn through training alone um, and the, the senior people investing the time to not only bring the juniors in, but then also to sit down afterwards and say, well, this is why we did this and this is what we were thinking. Um, it's, you know, that reflection after any negotiation to me is the, the key for actually continually developing skills. And, and that will speed things up a lot more than just watching and observing. Um, and of course, people like you coming and sharing your stories. And, you know, it's the whole reason I started this podcast was so that people could learn from stories from people like yourself. So in terms of um, other advice or um, things that you think people should be really concerned about in their negotiations or, or take the time to think about, is there any last advice that you'd have for I'd, people? Well, look, honestly, I think one, the, one of the biggest mistakes I see is getting intimidated, If especially it seems to be if you have a KC or senior counsel on the other side. They are just a, 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 a normal person, a normal lawyer, and yes, that they're excellent at what they do, but don't be intimidated by them. You are there to do the best for your client and, and don't, you know, you don't change your strategy or go soft. Don't worry about what they think about you. You do the best for your client as you can and don't change your negotiation strategy just because you're worried of how you will look to the other side. Yeah. That is a mistake that I find the more junior people do tend to get a bit intimidated and, and, and even junior counsel does. And that's something that I think is so important not to be intimidated by the other side, even if they are aggressive. That, that's, I always say to my client, the more aggressive, the worse the case. You know, yes. if you've got a brilliant case, <laughs> you don't have to be thumping the table and being aggressive and trying to intimidate the lawyer on the other side. You don't have to do that. If, if, you're, if the lawyer on the other side is trying to intimidate you, um, they, they must be worried about their case. That's, 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 that's what I read it as. And it, and it doesn't bother me, but it comes with experience. So I think that's one of the, the biggest things I can say. Please don't let the other side intimidate you. They may bring a cast of thousands. We can pull a thousand people to sit there and, and take notes. It makes no difference to the strategy. Stick to your negotiation principles. Think about the outcome your client wants. Think about the commerciality. That's that's my biggest advice. That is absolutely fantastic advice, Catherine, and uh, so valuable, for, particularly for the junior um, people listening, but for everybody. You know, the fact that somebody has a title um, and experience 
um, they're still just people and we, we're just negotiating together. I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Um, Catherine, it has been, as always, wonderful chatting to you. I love your commercial approach. I love the work that you do. For people who do have commercial disputes or want to get a little bit of your great commercial advice, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Look, they're, they're welcome to email me, contact me on LinkedIn or, or call me here at Magwix. I'm, I'm all over the web. I'm in LinkedIn or, or if you Google Magwix, you're welcome. You'll, you'll find me. I'm always happy to have a chat um, about your matter. Fantastic. And I will put all of those details in the show notes for everyone as well. So once again, thank you for taking the time, Catherine. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.